It should be conducted upon the highest principles known to Christian civilization. It should not be a war looking to the subjugation of the people of any state in any event. It should not be at all a war upon population, but against armed forces and political organization. Neither confiscation of property, political executions of person, territorial organizations or states, or forcible abolition of slavery should be contemplated for a moment. In prosecuting the war, all private property and unarmed persons would be strictly protected, subject only to the necessity of military operation. General George McClellan, Summer of 1862 When forced to choose between a principled war and victory, Lincoln chose victory. Historian Harry S. Stout A place, district, or country occupied by an enemy stands in consequence of the occupation under the martial law of the invading or occupying army, whether any proclamation declaring martial law or any public warning to the inhabitants has been issued or not. Martial law is the immediate and direct effect and consequence of occupation or conquest. Martial law in a hostile country consists in the suspension by the occupying military authority of the criminal and civil law and of the domestic administration and government in the occupied place or territory and in the substitution of military rule and force for the same. As martial law is executed by military force, it is incumbent upon those who administer it to be strictly guided by the principles of justice, honor, and humanity virtues adorning a soldier even more than other men for the very reason that he possesses the power of his arms against the unarmed. Martial law should be less stringent in places and countries fully occupied and fairly conquered. Much greater severity may be exercised in places or regions where actual hostilities exist or are expected and must be prepared for. Its most complete sway is allowed, even in the commander's own country, when face-to-face with the enemy, because of the absolute necessities of the case and of the paramount duty to defend the country against invasion. To save the country is paramount to all other considerations. Martial law extends to property and to persons, whether they are subjects of the enemy or aliens to that government. Military necessity, as understood by modern civilized nations, consists in the necessity of those measures which are indispensable for securing the ends of the war, and which are lawful according to the modern law and usages of war. Military necessity admits of all direct destruction of life or limb of armed enemies and of other persons whose destruction is incidentally unavoidable in the armed contests of the war. It allows of the capturing of every armed enemy and every enemy of importance to the hostile government or of peculiar danger to the captor. It allows of all destruction of property and obstruction of the ways and channels of traffic, travel or communication, and of all withholding of sustenance or means of life from the enemy. Of the appropriation of whatever an enemy's country affords necessary for the subsistence and safety of the army. Men who take up arms against one another in public war do not cease on this account to be moral beings responsible to one another and to God. Military necessity does not admit of cruelty, that is, the infliction of suffering for the sake of suffering or for revenge, nor of maiming or wounding except in fight, nor of torture to extort confessions. It does not admit the use of poison in any way, nor of the wanton devastation of a district." It admits of deception, but disclaims acts of perfidy, and, in general, military necessity does not include any act of hostility which makes the return to peace unnecessarily difficult. War is not carried on by arms alone. It is lawful to starve the hostile belligerent, armed or unarmed, so that it leads to the speedier subjection of the enemy. When a commander of a besieged place expels the non-combatants in order to lessen the number of those who consume his stock of provisions, it is lawful, though an extreme measure, to drive them back so as to hasten on the surrender. Commanders, whenever admissible, inform the enemy of their intention to bombard a place so that the non-combatants, and especially the women and children, may be removed before the bombardment commences. But it is no infraction of the common law of war to omit, thus, to inform the enemy. Surprise may be a necessity. 
Public war is a state of armed hostility between sovereign nations or governments. It is a law and requisite of civilized existence that men live in political, continuous societies forming organized units called states or nations, whose constituents bear, enjoy, suffer, advance, and retrograde together in peace and in war. The citizen or native of a hostile country is thus an enemy as one of the constituents of the hostile state or nation, and as such is subjected to the hardships of war. Nevertheless, as civilization has advanced during the last centuries, so has likewise steadily advanced, especially in war on land, the distinction between the private individual belonging to a hostile country and the hostile country itself with its men in arms. The principle has been more and more acknowledged that the unarmed citizen is to be spared in person, property, and honor as much as the exigencies of war will admit. Private citizens are no longer murdered, enslaved, or carried off to distant parts, and the inoffensive individual is as little disturbed in his private relations as the commander of the hostile troops can afford to grant in the overruling demands of a vigorous war. In modern regular wars of the Europeans and their descendants in other portions of the globe, protection of the inoffensive citizen of the hostile country is the rule. Privation and disturbance of private relations are the exceptions. The law of war can no more wholly dispense with retaliation than can the law of nations, of which it is a branch. Yet civilized nations acknowledge retaliation as the sternest feature of war. A reckless enemy often leaves to his opponent no other means of securing himself against the repetition of barbarous outrage. Retaliation will therefore never be resorted to as a measure of mere revenge, but only as a means of protective retribution, and moreover, cautiously and unavoidably. That is to say, retaliation shall only be resorted to after careful inquiry into the real occurrence and the character of the misdeeds that may demand retribution. Unjust or inconsiderate retaliation removes the belligerents farther and farther from the mitigating rules of regular war, and by rapid steps leads them nearer to the internecine wars of savages. The ultimate object of all modern war is a renewed state of peace. The more vigorously wars are pursued, the better it is for humanity. Sharp wars are brief. Ever since the formation and coexistence of modern nations, and ever since wars have become great national wars, war has come to be acknowledged not to be its own end, but the means to obtain great ends of state, or to consist in defense against wrong, and no conventional restriction of the modes adopted to injure the enemy is any longer admitted. But the law of war imposes many limitations and restrictions on principles of justice, faith, and honor. A victorious army appropriates all public money, seizes all public movable property until further direction by its government, and sequesters for its own benefit or that of its government all the revenues of real property belonging to the hostile government or nation. The title to such real property remains in abeyance during military occupation and until the conquest is made complete. It is no longer considered lawful. On the contrary, it is held to be a serious breach of the law of war to force the subjects of the enemy into the service of the victorious government, except the latter should proclaim after a fair and complete conquest of the hostile country or district that is resolved to keep the country, district, or place permanently as its own and make it a portion of its own country. As a general rule, the property belonging to churches, to hospitals, or to other establishments of an exclusively charitable character, to establishments of education or foundations for the promotion of knowledge, whether public schools, universities, academies of learning, or observatories, museums of the fine arts, or of a scientific character, such property is not to be considered public property in the sense of paragraph 31, but it may be taxed or used when the public service may require it. Classical works of art, libraries, scientific collections, or precious instruments such as astronomical telescopes, as well as hospitals, must be secured against all avoidable injury, even when they are contained in fortified places whilst besieged or bombarded. The United States acknowledge and protect, in hostile countries occupied by them, religion and morality. Strictly private property, the persons of the inhabitants, especially those of women, and the sacredness of domestic relations— Offenses to the contrary shall be rigorously punished. 
This rule does not interfere with the right of the victorious invader to tax the people or their property, to levy forced loans, to billet soldiers, or to appropriate property, especially houses, lands, boats, or ships, and churches, for temporary and military uses. Private property, unless forfeited by crimes or by offenses of the owner, can be seized only by way of military necessity, for the support or other benefit of the army or of the United States. If the owner has not fled, the commanding officer will cause receipts to be given, which may serve the spoliated owner to obtain indemnity. All municipal law of the ground on which the army stand, or of the countries to which they belong, is silent and of no effect between armies in the field. Slavery, complicating and confounding the ideas of property, that is, of a thing, and of personality, that is, of humanity, exists according to municipal or local law only. The law of nature and nations has never acknowledged it. The Digest of the Roman Law enacts the early dictum of the pagan jurist that, so far as the law of nature is concerned, all men are equal. Fugitives escaping from a country in which they were slaves, villains or serfs, into another country have, for centuries past, been held free and acknowledged free by judicial decisions of European countries, even though the municipal law of the country in which the slave had taken refuge acknowledged slavery within its own dominions. Therefore, in a war between the United States and a belligerent which admits of slavery, if a person held in bondage by that belligerent be captured by or come as a fugitive under the protection of the military forces of the United States, such person is immediately entitled to the rights and privileges of a free man. To return such person into slavery would amount to enslaving a free person, and neither the United States nor any officer under their authority can enslave any human being. Sorry, can't help resist right here. Side note, this is the same United States that was using military conscription by this point in the war. Back to the document. All wanton violence committed against persons in the invaded country, all destruction of property not commanded by the authorized officer, all robbery, all pillage or sacking, even after taking a place by main force, all rape, wounding, maiming, or killing of such inhabitants are prohibited under the penalty of death, or such other severe punishment as may seem adequate for the gravity of the offense. Men or squads of men who commit hostilities, whether by fighting or inroads for destruction or plunder, or by raids of any kind without commission, without being part and portion of the organized hostile army, and without sharing continuously in the war, but who do so with intermitting returns to their homes and avocations, or with the occasional assumption of the semblance of peaceful pursuits, divesting themselves of the character or appearance of soldiers, such men, or squads of men, are not public enemies, and therefore, if captured, are not entitled to the privileges of prisoners of war, but shall be treated summarily as highway robbers or pirates. There, of course, he's talking about irregular guerrilla fighters. Continuing. A spy is a person who secretly, in disguise, or under false pretense, seeks information with the intention of communicating it to the enemy. The spy is punishable with death by hanging by the neck, whether or not he succeeded in obtaining the information or in conveying it to the enemy. If a citizen of the United States obtains information in a legitimate manner and betrays it to the enemy, be he a military or civil officer or a private citizen, he shall suffer death. While deception in war is admitted as a just and necessary means of hostility and is consistent with honorable warfare, the common law of war allows even capital punishment for clandestine or treacherous attempts to injure an enemy because they are so dangerous and it is difficult to guard against them. The law of war, like the criminal law regarding other offenses, makes no difference on account of the difference of sexes concerning the spy the war traitor, or the war rebel. Armed or unarmed resistance by citizens of the United States against the lawful movements of their troops is levying war against the United States and is therefore treason. Abraham Lincoln's General Orders No. 100, issued April 24, 1863, also known as the Lieber Code, after its primary author, the German-American lawyer Franz Lieber. 
Now, the backstory of that document, from which I quoted extensively, but by no means all of the document, and to which I will link on the show notes for this episode. The backstory of that massive document is that in December of 1862, before the Emancipation Proclamation was to be implemented, Lincoln had put Franz Lieber to work in drawing up this overall framework for the war, which was then sent to Union Army generals and which was supposed to guide their conduct of the remainder of the conflict. And as you probably got a sense just from the passages I read, and I left out some of the more mundane things, and I didn't get too much into the parts dealing with things like prisoners and exchanges and all that, but I tried to include most of the really central stuff and revealing stuff, and I think you've gotten a sense of just how Orwellian this document was, just how open to interpretation it was, and even though in parts it would seem to explicitly forbid anything along the lines of what we'll get to later in terms of Sherman's march to the sea and through the Carolinas and similar things done by other armies. Yet at the same time, there are parts of that document that clearly seem to say, basically, that if the commanding officer on the spot decides it's necessary, that any of the things that this document says you're not supposed to do might potentially be okay, with perhaps, you know, the exception of the really egregious things like raping somebody or something like that. So Lincoln put Lieber to work on this near the end of 1862, and by April of 1863, it was finalized, and it was issued as General Orders Number 100 under Lincoln's signature. Notice from the excerpts I read how pretty much almost every time it says something that sounds humane and sounds like the idea of limited warfare that McClellan had espoused earlier in the war and that apparently he had actually taken somewhat seriously as as a guiding way to approach the war. Whenever the Lieber Code starts to sound that way, and as if it's putting big restrictions on what can be done to private property and non-combatants and so on and so forth, there's almost always an out. And that out is military necessity or the discretion of the commanding officer in the area or something along those lines. So basically, like, you can't do X, Y, Z unless the commanding officer decides it's militarily necessary. Historian Harry Stout, as usual, is very perceptive in his comments on this, and I'll share them with you. Quote, Lieber's code effectively gave commanders a blank check for operations in the field. Military necessity supplied the moral cloak permitting war on civilian populations. In effect, civilians were transferred from non-combatants to the enemy of the nation-state. Lieber's code gave Lincoln and his generals what they needed as they contemplated a new war that would deliberately invade civilian lives and properties. End quote. As is so often the case when you're dealing with documents and rules that are supposed to restrain the state, the state is usually very good at actually flipping those things and turning them into enablers. So the same could be said of constitutions, bills of rights, international treaties, all these sorts of things that very often at least part of their rationale is supposedly to limit the ability of the state to do certain things. Very often through selective interpretation and creative application, these things then get flipped and turn from devices of restraint to devices of enabling, justifying, and legitimizing. So in other words, this document, General Orders 100 or the Lieber Code, was ultimately the justifying document for things like Sherman's march through Georgia and the Carolinas, Sheridan's turning of the Shenandoah Valley into a desert, and many other similar but less notorious operations, large and small, in the latter two years of the war. This is CJ, your hazardous history helmsman, back with yet another installment, DHP episode 135, More Valor, Less Judgment, The Not-So-Civil War, Part 5. 
For the remainder of this episode, I'm going to be talking mostly about a couple of big battles in the East and kind of the operations surrounding them, namely the Battle of Fredericksburg and the Battle of Chancellorsville, both of which were Confederate victories and which ultimately marked the high tide of the Confederate war effort, especially in the East, but even overall, because they never really did very well in the West to begin with. But before we launch into that, I do have some Patreon shoutouts, some excellent people to thank for stepping up to support this show via patreon.com slash profcj, where if you sign up to support this show at a rate of a dollar per episode or more donation, you'll have access to bonus episodes as well as the private Facebook group just for Patreon supporters of this show. And as always, there'll be a link to the Patreon page for this show in the show notes for this episode at my website. And also, I've put a widget in the sidebar with the little Patreon thing, so that's there as well for your convenience. So anyway, thanks to Jordan, convict number 34751. And I'm not sure if that's a reference from a show or a book or something like that. I, I couldn't place it. Um, but interesting alias. And then another alias, Lee, RM35M4419, which that one I do recognize. It's a reference to the book This Perfect Day, which I reviewed in my three dystopian sci-fi books episode a long time ago. So thank you, Lee. Or I could also perhaps call you by the nickname Chip, I suppose. And thanks as well to JP, Benjamin, John, Dave, Bryce, and Jacob. Thank you all very much for stepping up to help support this show and keep it rolling and growing and improving. So, let us launch into more valor, less judgment. Now, we're picking up the story of major military operations in the East after the Battle of Antietam. And despite the Army of the Potomac's strategic success at Antietam in September of 1862, which, if you'll recall, had ended Lee's invasion of Maryland and dealt the Army of Northern Virginia proportionately higher losses, but very bloody for both armies. Despite the fact that it was a Union victory, at least in some senses, and that it certainly was portrayed as such by the Lincoln administration and the Northern press, despite that, Union General George McClellan, commander of the Army of the Potomac at Antietam, had refused to order any follow-up attacks at the battle itself, and basically had allowed Lee's army to pull out of Maryland badly damaged but intact. In October... Both Abraham Lincoln and his now General-in-Chief Henry Halleck urged McClellan to go on the offense because McClellan now had a huge numerical advantage. They wanted him to go and take advantage of the situation before Lee could start to rebuild his army a bit. But McClellan, in typical McClellan fashion, was dragging his feet and making excuses. Halleck wrote of McClellan, quote, There is an immobility here that exceeds all that any man can conceive of. It requires the lever of Archimedes to move this inert mass, end quote. Lincoln still tried a gentler approach with McClellan, writing to him, quote, You remember my speaking to you of what I called your overcautiousness. Are you not overcautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing, end quote? By which he obviously meant being quick-moving and decisive and moving his army around and trying to gain an advantage. Now, despite Lincoln constantly riding his ass, and Halleck too for that matter, McClellan's army didn't start to cross into Virginia until almost the end of October 1862, and moved so slowly that Lee had time to stick an army in between McClellan and Richmond. In regard to Lincoln's constant ass-riding of him, McClellan wrote to his wife that Lincoln was a gorilla, not gorilla or guria, right, with a G. U-E, but gorilla, or as they say in Captain Ron, gorilla, not gorilla, right? And uh, McClellan recommended to Lincoln that he remove Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and also General-in-Chief Halleck. 
Now, aside from that, in general, McClellan, who, if you'll recall, was a Democrat and who advocated limited war against the Confederacy, had long been a political thorn in the side of Lincoln's desire to wage an aggressive total war of attrition on all fronts. So finally, on November 7, 1862, Lincoln removed McClellan from command of the Army of the Potomac, the largest Union army in the East. Actually, the largest one overall, and certainly the main one in the East. Now, McClellan's replacement would be the man whose voluptuous mutton-chop whiskers gave sideburns their name, and I'm speaking, of course, of General Ambrose E. Burnside. Superficially, Burnside appeared to be pretty qualified. He'd graduated from West Point in 1847, and prior to the Civil War had served in the Mexican War, as so many other Civil War generals had, and a few years after that had fought against the Apaches in the New Mexico Territory, where he had been wounded by an arrow in the neck. He left the U.S. Army in 1853 and spent the next few years developing an interesting firearm called the Burnside Carbine, which was a breech-loading short rifle that used brass cartridges, and, you know, this overall technology was very advanced for the 1850s. And in fact, tens of thousands of these carbines would be issued to Union cavalrymen in the Civil War, though the Spencer and the Sharps carbines were more numerous for that role and were of somewhat better design, especially in regard to the cartridges that they used. Burnside had done pretty well early in the Civil War as the commander of the Army contingent of the joint Army-Navy operations that seized control of important spots on the North Carolina coast. And by the way, I'll get into some of those things and much, much more in my upcoming Patreon bonus episode about the naval aspects of the Civil War. However, Burnside had no experience commanding a massive force. He had done pretty well in commanding small to medium-sized forces, but He himself thought he was not at all qualified to command a large army. In fact, he was unhappy to be offered command. He had on prior occasions explicitly turned down offers from Lincoln to give him command of the Army of the Potomac. But in this case, Lincoln pressured him to reluctantly take command by saying that if Burnside didn't take command, he'd give command to Joseph fighting Joe Hooker, whom Burnside really did not like, and so he basically took command himself reluctantly to prevent it from going to Hooker. Burnside started off moving the huge and normally lumbering Army of the Potomac, which numbered well over 100,000 men at this point, actually probably numbered over 110,000 men, and he moved this giant army relatively quickly by comparison with McClellan's usual snail pace. He moved the army to Falmouth in Virginia, a town which is just across the Rappahannock River from the town of Fredericksburg. Burnside was going toward Richmond via a route that would involve his army having to cross multiple rivers. Two corps of Burnside's army made it to Falmouth by November 17th, which was quick enough that Lee didn't have enough forces there to block them from making a river crossing. But there was just one problem. And the problem was that the pontoons needed to build a bridge across the river weren't with the two advanced corps of the army. And in fact, the pontoons didn't show up there on the Rappahannock for a full two weeks, by which time Lee had had more than enough time to mass his Confederate army of about 75,000 men on the other side of the Rappahannock. The delay of the pontoons was at least in part caused by Burnside's own unclear orders and the fact that the Army of the Potomac at that point was a bit disorganized in terms of logistics and organization in general. Now, having lost the element of surprise that the speed of his initial moves might have gotten him, if only the pontoons had been where they had needed to be, Burnside then faced a serious problem. Historian James McPherson sums it up as follows, quote, Lee was willing to sit there all winter, but Burnside could not afford to do so. Lincoln and the public expected an offensive, end quote. So Burnside's thought process was basically, Lee's not going to expect me to be so stupid as to try to cross the river right in front of his army. He'll expect me to try to go cross somewhere else. Therefore, I'm going to try to cross the river right in front of his army. Historians Williamson Murray and Wayne Sia, in their book A Savage War, write, quote, Burnside's plan was straightforward and about as realistic as Haig's attack on 1 July 1916 on the Somme, end quote. 
Lee, in fact, was surprised that Burnside was stupid enough to cross the river there. But the fact that he was surprised by Burnside's blunder did not at all prevent him from being able to handle it. Lee had General James Longstreet's corps dug in on a stretch of really advantageous high ground overlooking the town of Fredericksburg, with a clear field of fire of open ground coming uphill towards them that was about a half mile. In other words, any Union attack would have to cross about a half mile of open ground uphill. Furthermore, much of Longstreet's army was behind a stone wall at the base of this high ground, which was called Marie's Heights. Lee wanted Burnside to assault this strongly defended position, so he decided to offer only token resistance to the Union Army's river crossing and their entrance into Fredericksburg in order to just slow them down enough to allow Stonewall Jackson's corps to also get into position on this stretch of high ground just outside Fredericksburg, and then they would basically just bait the Union Army into making the attack on the Confederates' strong position on the high ground outside of the town. In the wee a.m. hours of December 11, 1862, Union engineers managed to make several pontoon bridges across the Rappahannock without too much trouble. Then they took some sniper fire from within the town of Fredericksburg, from which most of the civilian population had already been evacuated by this point. Union artillery shelled the town and several regiments of bluecoats fought their way into it. After clearing it out of the Confederate sharpshooters, they then proceeded to loot and pillage the town, destroying property they found in abandoned houses and stores and taking things that were, you know, small and valuable when they could. Naturally, the Confederate forces watching this from the heights outside the town really wanted to give these guys some punishment, and they would get their chance. On the morning of December 13th, Burnside would order an attack on the main Confederate positions outside Fredericksburg. Longstreet's corps was just to the southwest of the town, and Jackson's just to the southeast of it. Author Shelby Foote, who's definitely one of the most literarily gifted authors of Civil War histories, and he's the guy, if you've ever watched the Ken Burns Civil War documentary series, he's the handsome gray-haired Mississippian with that old-school Southern aristocrat accent of the Deep South, that accent that doesn't sound like the stereotypical dumb Southerner, but instead sounds like the very educated, cultivated one. In some ways, similar to the accent that Kevin Spacey puts on in the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and to some extent, even in House of Cards. Anyway, Shelby Foote writes of this battle, quote, Of all these various battles and engagements fought in all these various places, Fredericksburg, the nearest to the national capital, was the largest, in numbers engaged if not in bloodshed, as well as the grandest as a spectacle, in which respect it equaled if, indeed, it did not outdo any other major conflict of the war. Staged as it was, with a curtain of fog that lifted, under the influence of a genial sun upon a sort of natural amphitheater, referred to by one of the 200,000 participants, a native of the site as a champagne tract enclosed by hills. It quite fulfilled the volunteers' early abandoned notion of combat as a picture book affair. End quote. Well, like Shelby Foote indicated, the morning began in a fog that lifted by mid-morning, and Burnside had part of his army under General William Franklin attack the Confederate right, which was Jackson's Corps and the other parts of his army under Generals Edwin Sumner and Joseph Hooker attacked Longstreet's Corps on the Confederate left. Some Pennsylvanians in Franklin's force found a weak spot in Jackson's lines that might have been exploited, but Franklin didn't send in reinforcements in time before the Confederates were able to shift in reserves, counterattack, close up the gap, and drive the Pennsylvanians back. The attack on that side of the battle didn't last too long, and much of the major fighting would take place on the other side, on the Union's right, where over the course of the day, they launched what ended up being a series of basically suicidal human wave attacks up the open ground toward Longstreet's men on Marie's Heights. Each of these attacks made by a brigade would leave behind thousands of killed and wounded, and in all, 14 Union brigades would launch assaults up Marie's Heights. The Confederate infantry had a very strong defensive position behind the stone wall there, and the Confederate artillery were in a great position higher up. 
By the time the sun went down on the battlefield at Fredericksburg, the Union had lost almost as many men there as they had at Antietam. Almost 13,000 casualties, about 10% of whom were killed, most of the remainder wounded, and a smaller number captured or missing. The Union forces never even made it all the way to the stone wall before they were mowed down. When night fell, the temperature dropped below freezing, and many of the wounded men died of exposure. Union survivors piled up their own dead to shelter them both from the cold wind and from Confederate bullets. A soldier, later involved in dealing with the piles of bodies at this battle, wrote of what he witnessed that he saw things like, quote, one without a head here, there one without legs, yonder a head and legs without a trunk, with fragments of shell sticking and oozing brain, with bullet holes all over the puffed limbs, end quote. Of course, a big difference was that at Antietam, both sides had suffered similarly in terms of the carnage, whereas at Fredericksburg, because of the horrible tactics of the Union Army, it was a very one-sided thing. The Confederates only suffered about one-third as many casualties as the Union, making this battle, casualty-wise, probably the most lopsided large Confederate victory of the whole war. Burnside wanted to launch another frontal attack the next day, which he planned to personally lead, and even wrote out the orders, but was then persuaded by some of his officers to revoke them. On the Confederate side, Lee chose to not launch an attack at an army that still greatly outnumbered his own even after the the battle, after all the casualties, and then also, if he went on offense, he'd be giving up the defensive advantage that he had just enjoyed. On the night of December 14th, the Aurora Borealis, or Northern Lights, showed up over the battlefield, something very rare to see as far south as Virginia, and that is believed to have been caused by a solar flare. Some accounts indicate that the Northern Lights were seen that night, even as far as the Deep South states. On the night of December 15th, Burnside pulled his battered forces back across the Rappahannock, Most of the city of Fredericksburg was destroyed, and the piles of dead and maimed bodies left by the Union assaults up Marie's Heights were just absolutely horrific and apocalyptic. It was during this battle that Robert E. Lee would famously say to James Longstreet, It is well that war is so terrible. We should grow too fond of it. Confederates, as always, badly undersupplied, scavenged among the Union bodies for food, clothing, footwear, and anything else. Burnside was apparently destroyed by the magnitude of his disaster and tried to censor the press coverage of the battle for several days, but the news soon got out to the northern public. The editor of the Cincinnati Commercial wrote, quote, It can hardly be in human nature for men to show more valor or generals to manifest less judgment than were perceptible on our side that day, end quote. Journalist Sid Deming of the Associated Press, who was with the Army of the Potomac, was arrested and sent back to Washington for an article he penned about the disastrously low morale in the Army at the time. Burnside eventually had to issue an apology to the AP for having done that. Burnside ultimately did publicly take the blame for the disaster, though a lot of the public and politicians looked to blame Lincoln. And the time period from the Battle of Fredericksburg on through the aftermath of the Battle of Chancellorsville was one of the lowest points politically for the administration of Abraham Lincoln. However, as historian Harry Stout points out, quote, While quick to criticize northern leadership for the defeat at Fredericksburg, no public commentators remarked on the level of the slaughter. The infantry of patriotism, reinforced with the artillery of mounting hatred, rendered both sides mindless killing machines bent on destruction. In January, Burnside would lead the Army of the Potomac on offense into Virginia again, but this would degenerate into something that got known to history as the Mud March, where basically Burnside's army was defeated by a combination of winter storms and chaos within the army's commands. Before the army could ever even engage Lee's forces in battle, they were forced to turn back. After that offensive was aborted, Lincoln replaced Burnside with General Joseph Fighting Joe Hooker on January 26, 1863. 
Hooker was a braggart and a boaster, but to Lincoln, he at least seemed to be energetic and decisive and aggressive in a way that neither McClellan nor Burnside had been. And Hooker had supposedly boasted, My plans are perfect. May God have mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. He also once stated that he thought he had about an 80% chance of being successful against Lee. Hooker was another West Pointer with a reputation for things like drinking and profanity. He'd previously been reported in the press as having said that the Union needed a dictator, and as a result, in his statement in which he gave Hooker command of the Army of the Potomac, Lincoln had written, quote, I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the Army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain success can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship, end quote. And it looked like a good choice initially, because Hooker did have some success early on just in rehabilitating the Army of the Potomac and reorganizing it. He was definitely better at that kind of stuff than Burnside had been. Now, on the other side, for Lee's part, despite his huge victory at Fredericksburg and his army's corresponding boost in morale, he knew the Army of the Potomac was far from finished, and he knew that his own army of Northern Virginia was in bad shape, especially in terms of supplies. Lee was actually somewhat disappointed in the victory at Fredericksburg, and he later wrote about the battle, quote, We had really accomplished nothing. We had not gained a foot of ground, and I knew the enemy could easily replace the men he had lost. End quote. Lee continued to believe in this idea of seeking out one ultimately decisive battle at which he would just absolutely crush the Army of the Potomac, but that would ultimately prove elusive. And I've often thought that he should have just been looking to have as many Fredericksburg-type battles as possible, as many lopsided defensive wins, because, yes, one battle of Fredericksburg wasn't enough to stop the Army of the Potomac and the overall Union war effort, but man, a bunch of them might have caused the northern public to turn against the war in a big way. But he wasn't thinking in those terms. He was thinking in more Napoleonic terms. In April... Joseph Hooker divided his army into three parts and went on offense in northern Virginia. He sent his cavalry force of 10,000 across the Rappahannock to try to go around Lee's army and cut its supply lines, although what ended up happening in part was that Hooker lost touch with those cavalry units and ended up being somewhat blind as far as having good intelligence. Hooker then had one contingent of about 70,000 infantry cross the Rappahannock upstream from Fredericksburg, while a smaller contingent of about 40,000 pretended to threaten the Confederate defenses at Fredericksburg. And this was meant to be more of a diversion, an attack that Hooker did not actually intend to repeat the, the attack at Fredericksburg that Burnside had tried a few months earlier. It was really just a feint. And again, one of those rare times, the Army of the Potomac moved pretty quickly. And by April 30th, Hooker's main force of 70,000 infantry was parked west of Fredericksburg near a mansion that was called Chancellorsville, which was surrounded by a dense forest that was simply called the Wilderness. Hooker thought he had Lee's army trapped between his own two contingents and that Lee would have no choice but to either try to make a stand where he was surrounded and outnumbered, or else try to escape. But the thing was, Lee had figured out Hooker's intentions. He figured out which part of the attack was a feint and which one was the main attack, and basically tried to come up with a way to foil Hooker's plans. So Lee left a small force under Jubal Early to defend Fredericksburg itself, and then moved most of his army toward the wilderness on May 1st. When some parts of Lee's army began to make contact and get into fights with Union forces. Hooker, instead of aggressively fighting back in an area that was of relatively open terrain, where the Union forces could have maybe benefited from their much superior numbers, instead, Hooker pulled back defensively into the wilderness towards Chancellorsville. And Lee, once again demonstrating one of his greatest strengths, had figured Hooker out psychologically, as he had McClellan and Burnside before. And he realized that, despite being outnumbered, if he went on offense, he might be able to beat the Army of the Potomac yet again. 
So he would do one of his favorite signature moves for the umpteenth time. He would go against all standard military prudence and would take his army, which was already much smaller than the other side, and divide it. Now, Lee's two main subordinates during this part of the war were generals James Longstreet and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, but Longstreet was not present for this battle as he had been dispatched along with 15,000 men to southern Virginia. So it's going to basically be Lee and Jackson trying to pull off a David against Goliath win here. James McPherson describes the scene between Lee and Jackson trying to figure out their approach to this battle as follows, quote, On the night of May 1, Jackson and Lee sat on empty hardtack boxes and conferred by firelight. The Federals' entrenched line on high ground around Chancellorsville seemed too strong for a direct assault. The Union left was anchored on the Rappahannock and could not be turned. While the two generals discussed how to get at those people, which is how Lee normally talked about them, by the way, Lee's cavalry chief, Jeb Stewart, brought reports from his scouts that Hooker's right flank was, quote, up in the air, end quote, three miles west of Chancellorsville. Here was the opportunity Lee needed, and Jackson was the man to seize it, end quote. Early the next morning, Jackson, along with about 30,000 men, left on a 12-mile march to attack the Union from an unexpected direction, while Lee stayed put with about 15,000 men. And this was a very risky gamble, because Jackson's men would be marching basically right across the Union's front via mostly some obscure paths through the wilderness. They knew the terrain better, and they had better local intelligence, and they took advantage of it. But still, if the Union commanders discovered what Jackson was up to and realized what they were doing, Jackson's troops would be very vulnerable. They would be outnumbered, strung out on the march, all that kind of stuff. And likewise, if the Union commanders realized that Lee was staying put with only 15,000 men, those men would be very vulnerable to destruction in detail as well. In other words, if Hooker had good intelligence, and if he had as much tactical savvy as a Jackson or a Lee, he might have been able to really crush the smaller, divided Confederate forces. But Hooker didn't have those things, and instead, Hooker acted pretty much as Lee anticipated and hoped, basically doing nothing while Jackson's army was on the move. And again, part of Hooker's lack of intelligence was that he'd sent most of his cavalry off on that raid to try and cut the Confederate supply lines and do all that stuff, which, by the way, a similar thing is going to happen when Lee invades Pennsylvania later that year on his side. Nonetheless, some of Hooker's infantrymen did see Jackson's forces on the move. You couldn't miss a mass of men marching through an area, making that much noise and making making that much disturbance. But Hooker interpreted what he was seeing as Jackson's men were trying to escape from the area. In other words, he thought they were retreating, and Hooker managed to make his subordinate generals believe this as well. This is how Lee later described the maneuver that Jackson was executing at this battle to Jackson's widow in a letter after the war. Quote, General Jackson, after some inquiry concerning the roads leading to the terrace, undertook to throw his command entirely in Hooker's rear, which he accomplished with equal skill and boldness, the rest of the army being moved to the left flank to connect with him as he advanced. End quote. Now, the forces on the Union right that were in the crosshairs of Jackson's flanking maneuver were a corps under General Oliver O. Howard, and this was a unit that largely consisted of fairly recent immigrants, most of them German, who were also mostly very green troops to boot. When some of their own pickets reported Jackson's movement, Howard nonetheless failed to properly prepare his men, in part because he, like Hooker, thought that this was likely a Confederate retreat and in part because he didn't expect the Confederates to be coming through the dense wilderness, which is exactly what they were doing. And they came from the direction that no one expected when they came steamrolling out of the wilderness at Howard's troops. They were caught totally unawares. The Union troops were mostly relaxing at camp, eating, cooking, that sort of stuff. In the early evening, a little bit after 5 p.m., when all of a sudden a bunch of deer came running out of the wilderness through their camp. And at first they were amused, but then they quickly realized what it was that had spooked the deer. It was Jackson's troops. 
In the fight that ensued, the Yankees suffered almost 2,500 casualties within a couple of hours. The Confederates pushed the Union troops back several miles in a fight, which included some of the very few instances of night fighting in the whole war, as the sun fell and in the light of dusk and as that faded. But the thing was, the night fighting ended up being sporadic. It was always a risky thing and hard to carry out in the Civil War, given the technology of the time. And the fight started to fizzle out as it got darker. And really, what had happened was that Jackson's troops had showed up so late in the day that they didn't have enough daylight to really push their advantage of this surprise attack from an unexpected direction and really follow it up and exploit it as well as they might have, because it simply got too dark. But the Confederates were in a tactical sense clearly winning as it got dark, but then tragedy struck their own army. Stonewall Jackson was riding out with some other officers to do some recon and plan the next attack, and then they were riding quickly back towards their own lines when some North Carolinians mistook these guys riding in quickly in the dusk for Union cavalrymen, and they fired, and Jackson caught two bullets in the left arm. As it was pretty much standard operating procedure back then, the arm was soon amputated, and Cavalry General Jeb Stuart would command Jackson's infantry for the remainder of the Battle of Chancellorsville. The Battle of Chancellorsville was not over with the wounding of Jackson, and Jackson's brilliant attack, while achieving success, had failed to achieve the ultimate goal of just seriously debilitating the Army of the Potomac, again, in part because of how late they had struck. On May 3rd, things actually got bloodier, and the day would end up being, in fact, the second bloodiest day of the entire war, second, of course, only to Antietam. Lee was trying to figure out how to dislodge a Union Army Corps under General Dan Sickles that was on some high ground between the two wings of Lee's own army when Hooker did him a favor and ordered Sickles to withdraw north towards Chancellorsville. Over the course of the day, the Confederates launched repeated attacks on the Union forces at Chancellorsville with both sides taking horrific losses. Partway through the day, General Joseph Hooker got knocked unconscious by an artillery shell that struck near where he was leaning on a post watching the battle, and he spent the remainder of the day pretty well out of it, but nonetheless unwilling to relinquish command, which didn't help things as he lost several opportunities to launch counterattacks and deploy reserves in ways that might have tilted the balance of the battle back in his favor. But of course, given how lackluster his generalship had been in the battle up till that point, it probably wouldn't have made much difference if he hadn't been knocked out by the artillery shell at all. Back over towards the town of Fredericksburg in a fight that's sometimes called the Second Battle of Fredericksburg, the 12,000 Confederates who had been left there under Jubal Early were dug in on Marie's Heights, facing more than double their number of Union infantry under General John Sedgwick. Sedgwick moved his forces through the town of Fredericksburg at dawn and then attacked Marie's Heights in a frontal assault that failed. A flanking attack later worked, however, and Early ultimately withdrew his men. So the Union quote-unquote won this smaller battle within the larger Chancellorsville campaign, but at a cost of over a thousand casualties versus the Confederates' loss of only about 700 defending Marie's Heights again. Fighting continued around Chancellorsville the next day as Lee and Jeb Stewart skillfully used interior lines to fight Federal forces on two sides, and then finally, on the night of May 5th through 6th, the battered Union Army again pulled back across the Rappahannock. A Union officer named Philo Buckingham wrote of what he saw in the aftermath of the battle, quote, it seemed more like a dream than anything else, and yet the hospitals full of wounded gave sad evidence that it was not a dream but a terrible reality. On Saturday night, the scene was wonderfully grand and yet hideous beyond description. Our men constantly being carried to the rear with almost every conceivable kind of wound, with blood streaming down their faces, arms shot off, legs shot off, some holding their own bowels in their hands, which had been let out by the explosion of a shell, horses rushing about the fields riderless, and perhaps with a leg or legs shot off, others with the blood streaming from holes, end quote. All told, over the course of fighting from April 30th through May 6th, the Union had suffered around 17,000 total casualties, about 10% of whom were killed. The Confederates had suffered around 13,000 casualties, about 12% of whom were killed. 
Now, keeping in mind that Lee's army was significantly smaller to begin with, and that the Confederacy, the Confederate states, had much less overall population from which to replenish its forces than did the Union, yet again, Lee had won one of those tactical quote-unquote victories in which his forces proportionately are being much more depleted than is the other side. And for all that cost, he's still not getting that knockout decisive battle of annihilation against the Army of the Potomac that he was always searching for. Nonetheless, in the North, Chancellorsville, understandably, was another massive blow to morale. People weren't thinking in terms of an attrition war yet, at least not most people. They were thinking more in terms of tactical successes or failures in individual battles. Even Lincoln was stunned. After hearing about the defeat, he supposedly said, My God, my God, what will the country say? Newspaper editor Horace Greeley wrote of the battle in his New York Tribune, quote, My God, it is horrible, horrible. And to think of it, 130,000 magnificent soldiers so cut to pieces by less than 60,000 half-starved ragamuffins, end quote. Despite the defeat, Lincoln didn't remove Hooker from command for more than a month after the battle, finally getting rid of him in late June, not long before the Battle of Gettysburg, after Hooker kept creating hassles for both Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck. Chancellorsville is often considered Lee's greatest victory, and certainly there's a lot of tactical brilliance that you can find on the part of Lee and Jackson at this battle, but Lee had paid a heavy price for this victory and lost men, including Stonewall Jackson and then, of course, tons of ordinary soldiers. And after the battle, he still hadn't gotten the total destruction of the Army of the Potomac he thought he could get. Nonetheless, Lee remained convinced that he could get a decisive victory against the bigger force if he just pulled things off better next time. Historian Harry Stout accurately sums up the battle as follows, quote, Lee's masterpiece at Chancellorsville represented a Pyrrhic victory that marked the beginning of the end of the Confederate Army. Without Jackson, Lee never replicated the brilliance of Chancellorsville. Even with Jackson, the odds of future victories were slim. The logic of Lincoln's awful arithmetic continued to wear down the limited resources of the South. And though a marvel of military strategizing and pinpoint execution, Chancellorsville settled nothing in an ultimate strategic sense, end quote. Now, as for Stonewall Jackson, he got ill and would die within eight days of being wounded. On May 10th, he would die of pneumonia. When he died, his wife was present. She had come in, you know, when she'd found out that he had been wounded and had his arm amputated. And toward the end, Jackson said that he was glad that he was dying on a Sunday when he realized he didn't have much left. Throughout his suffering, he refused any brandy or morphine or anything like that. Dr. Hunter McGuire, who was tending to Jackson, later recorded the general's last moments as follows, quote, A few moments before he died, he cried out in his delirium, Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front rapidly. Tell Major Hawks, then stopped, leaving the sentence unfinished. Presently, a smile of ineffable sweetness spread itself over his pale face, and he said quietly, and with an expression as if of relief, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. End quote. Then, of course, he died. He was treated as a martyred hero in the Confederacy, in some ways very similar to how Lincoln would be treated in the North two years later after he was assassinated. Jackson's coffin arrived in Richmond on May 12th, and the city was pretty much shut down for thousands of people to view the coffin on its funeral procession, which included other Confederate generals as well as President Jefferson Davis and a riderless horse. Historian Harry Stout, as usual, very perceptively writes, quote, Not until Abraham Lincoln's assassination two years later would there be a comparable sense of loss. And as with Lincoln, the loss would be interpreted in terms that would pave the way for a civil religion, in this case, a Southern civil religion. In the public response to Jackson's death, we see a concrete illustration of the process by which Confederate civil religion was incarnated through a violent atonement, end quote. Richmond writer Sally Putnam, who wrote a book about the war that was published just a few years after the end of the war, wrote of Jackson, quote, when we reflect upon his stainless reputation, we feel that he was one of whom the world was not worthy. 
that he walked with God and was not, for God took him. With us, Jackson can never die. In our souls he lives. In our hearts is graven the name whose destiny is a glorious immortality. Though dead, he yet lives, shall ever live. End quote. John Randolph Tucker, who was at that time the state attorney general of Virginia, wrote in a book entitled The Southern Church Justified in its Support of the South in the Present War, which was published during the war in 1863, wrote of Jackson's death, quote, Christianity may well cherish the memory of this holy hero as the noblest example of pious patriotism and appeals to his name as an imperishable proof that the devout conscience of the South, in the fear and love of God, is constrained to yield up life, a bleeding sacrifice upon the altar of its country's independence. End quote. Also, perhaps somewhat interestingly and revealingly, Tucker, on the very next page of that book, launches right into a defense of slavery, writing, quote, we are a superior race with an inferior race to deal with. We are its guardians, and it is our pupil, and all this under God's good providence. God put the Negro here and placed us in authority over him, to regulate him, to make him useful, instead of being unthrifty, industrious and not idle, Christian and not savage. This work we mean to do, despite the efforts of our foes in arms and the revilings of ignorant fanaticism throughout the world. End quote. In the aftermath of Chancellorsville, Jefferson Davis wanted to send a lot more Confederate forces from the east to the west to reinforce Vicksburg and try to prevent the Union from taking control of the entire Mississippi River. Vicksburg, despite being a hard target, was being moved against relentlessly by Ulysses Grant at that very time, and Lee would talk him out of it. Still, Lee wanted to try to focus the war on the east, and in fact, Lee began planning and convincing Davis of a new southern offensive in the east up into Pennsylvania to try to seek a decisive victory on northern soil that would, Lee hoped and believed, knock the legs out from under the northern public's support for the war. what you heard in this podcast there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist to improve and grow one is simply to spread the word about the dangerous history podcast in any way you can social media online discussion boards word of mouth whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as itunes or stitcher and you can help the show financially several different ways one of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. 
You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.